when Abimelech sees that Isaac is blessed by God and prospering, even in a famine, even in a waterless land, he is eager to be at peace, formally, with the one he had previously persecuted and cast out. There's a principle here which we should be careful to take note of. It isn't merely that we are blessed that attracts the attention of our neighbors. It is that we are blessed in adversity and that we are blessed despite persecution. That is what Abimelech noticed. And that is what caused him to attribute Isaac's situation to the hand of God. And therefore, it is not congruent with the life of faith to expect the absence of hardship or the absence of sickness or the absence of loss. We won't be without those things until we get to Revelation 21 and the new heavens and the new earth. No, biblical faith expects blessing in hardship, in adversity, in pain, in sickness, in loss, and in persecution. That is what brings God glory, and that is what grows faith. Thanks be to God. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. It's being blessed in adversity and being blessed despite persecution that captures the attention of our neighbors and that causes us to be recognized as the people of God. I love that, and I think it's a lesson we'll need to remember in the weeks and months ahead. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Genesis chapter 26. There's a sense here in which we see Isaac repeating some of the challenges faced by his father Abraham. We shouldn't be surprised by this. God doesn't change and people don't change. So we expect to see some repetition or better, we learn to spot certain patterns in God's fatherly dealings with his people. Here we see Isaac tested by a famine. Few things make a man feel smaller or less secure than the infertility of his wife and the infertility of his fields. A man who cannot start a family and a man who cannot feed a family is very likely to become a man of prayer. So it is here. That's what we're watching over these chapters. We'll begin reading the text at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Here we see Isaac doing better than Abraham with this particular challenge in that he does not go down to Egypt. Egypt here represents the immediate and the carnal. This is the solution of the flesh. This is Hagar all, all over again. But Isaac does better. He resists the temptation to turn his back on the long term in favor of the short term. And he stays in the land that God had promised to give him. This is faith. This is an act of faith because there is a famine in the land, right? There's, a, there's an absence of water. This doesn't look to the eyes of natural man. This does not look like where he should be. Egypt looks like where he should be. 
God told him to stay. Isaac is growing and maturing, but he still has a long way to go. And we see that illustrated in the next part of the story. Verse 7 goes on to say, When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Well, here we learn that the sins of the father very often are visited upon the children. At least Abraham could claim that Sarah was technically his sister. Isaac could do no such thing. This is a bald-faced lie, and he knows it. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. One of the older translations says, sporting with his wife. I think we're to understand what that means, okay? Verse 9, so Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. First thing we should say here is that Isaac underestimated the virtue of his neighbors. He assumed that Abimelech and his people were all sexually immoral and inclined to rape, murder, and wife-stealing, when clearly that wasn't the case. Abimelech knew that adultery would bring a curse upon the man who indulged in it. Even without reading the book of Proverbs, he seems to understand this aspect of social wisdom. Proverbs 6, 27-29 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest? and his clothes not get burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Now this reminds us that the outline of the law of God is written on men's hearts. We call this conscience, and all people have it. Of course, conscience can be sharpened by actual knowledge of the word of God, and it can be dulled by repeated defiance and transgression, but it is there to a greater or lesser extent in all people. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to pause here if we can, because I want to ask you a couple of questions about this whole episode between Isaac and Abimelech. First of all, I love what you said there about Isaac underestimating his neighbor. He assumed that Abimelech would be sexually immoral, and so made the decision to lie and deceive uh, him about the identity of his wife. But the story seems to indicate that Abimelech was a better person than Isaac gave him credit for. So how should we think about the morality of unsaved people? On one hand, some Christians would talk about total depravity, but then here you were talking about conscience and how all people have some sense of right and wrong. So unpack that for us a little bit if you can. Well, that's a fantastic question, and I think we can get this wrong in two different directions. We do often talk about what theologians call total depravity. Now, that doesn't mean that we believe that all people are as sinful as it is possible to be. We don't mean total in the sense of terribly. We are using total there in the sense of extent. We are saying that the effect of sin touches everything. So no person, no arena of human life or thought has been unaffected by the fall. The tentacles of sin stretch out and touch everything. That's what we mean by that. But it is very easy and very common to over-apply that. 
and to think the worst of our unsaved friends and neighbors. But this story reminds us that the outline of God's law is written on every human heart. Theologians sometimes refer to that as natural law. There are two big truths that we have to hold on to here. One is the truth that all people everywhere have been created in the image and likeness of God. So the imprint of God's character is stamped on every human heart. We have a moral memory. Now, as I said in the program audio, that moral memory, that natural law, that conscience, whatever you want to call it, can be sharpened by exposure to the actual word of God. And it can be dulled by repeated defiance and transgression. But it is there to some extent in all people. So when we doubt the goodness of people, when we doubt their capacity for moral reasoning or selfless action, we're actually doubting the image of God. We are denying the existence and operation of natural law. When we think that people have to be forced to do things, when we exaggerate the role or necessity of law, we are again doubting or undervaluing the fact that we are made in the image of God and we retain something of the image of God. So that is one way we can get this wrong. But as I said, we can get it wrong in another way, too. There's, there's a ditch on both sides of the road here. Just like we can forget that people were created in the image of God, so, too, we can forget that people have fallen away from God. So the image of God is defaced and obscured by sin. So we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We deny what we know. And we are infected with the virus of sin and rebellion. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The ESV actually has that as desperately sick. Who can know it? So it is foolish to treat our thoughts, feelings, and inclinations as reliable or authoritative because of the current state of our hearts. The path of wisdom, then, is to take our thoughts and inclinations to the Word of God for healing and refinement. So people aren't totally bad, but neither are they reliably good. Is that what you're saying? Well, however you say it, it's complicated. I acknowledge that. I think the most important thing for us to remember is that all people are made in the image and likeness of God, and all people are fallen and affected by sin. We aren't who we were made to be, and we aren't functioning at the level we were originally capable of. But there is good in there. There is the image of God in there. There is conscience. There is imprint. There is impulse. And that can be recovered, redeemed, restored, and renewed through the miracle of regeneration and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. All right, that was really helpful. Let's jump back into the story now again, just prior to verse 12. Now, less significantly, we should also say that the name Abimelech repeats in this story, likely because it was less of a name and more of a title. It means, literally, my father is or was king. So it was probably the name for the hereditary leader of the people in this city. The same is likely true of the name Phicol, which we will meet again later in this chapter. It probably means something like commander or general. Verse 12 goes on to say, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Now remember, this is during a famine. The Lord blessed him, verse 12 goes on to say, And the man became rich 
and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Here we see that Isaac is blessed materially as a result of the promises of God. And again, we need to remember that the Bible has a somewhat complicated perspective on material wealth. Far more complicated, I think, than most Christians tend to acknowledge. It cannot be denied that God intends to bless his people materially. God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. We teach that to our children in the catechism. But we people do have bodies. And therefore, if you want to bless people who live in bodies, then those blessings are certain to have a material quality. That's not a bad thing. God is not opposed to material. In fact, it is a form of heresy to suggest that God is opposed to physical and material things. That is the heresy known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught that spirit was good and material was bad, and therefore salvation was about escaping the material. They viewed the body as a cage for the spirit. Well, to state the obvious, we believe that God took on flesh and that he will resurrect his people into physical bodies to live in a reconstituted physical universe for all eternity. So our story is explicitly material. It's a physical story. And God wants to bless his people in physical, tangible, material ways. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all believers will be rich in this life. There are many reasons for poverty in the Bible. We can't go through them all here, but this we can say for sure. God does not want his people to be poor. He wants them to be rich, and they will be rich, though not always in this present life. But they will be rich. Jesus said in Mark 10, 29 to 30, truly, when Jesus starts a sentence with truly, guess what? It's true. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So there, Jesus says that there will be rewards and persecutions in this life. But then in the age to come, we will enjoy eternal rewards without any persecution, loss, or diminishment. He said in Matthew 6, 19 to 20, Do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So putting that all together, we might say that God wants us to be rich, and he promises us that we will be. Some of it may come in this life, along with persecutions and troubles, but most of it will come in the next life, where we will enjoy riches that will never rust, tarnish, or fade. So we see that that, that basic formula, we see that illustrated in the story of Isaac. God blesses him materially. But because this world is sinful, because it has fallen and not functioning correctly, Isaac's wealth actually brings pain and loss into his life. It creates envy and conflict with his neighbors and forces him to leave the place where he had been living. So it is this side of a new heavens 
and the new earth. Pick up the story in verse 18. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. Had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. In general, Protestants have shied away from allegorical readings of the Old Testament, and generally speaking, I think that is the course of wisdom. But there is such a thing as typology, and it is commended to us in the New Testament. Paul uses the Greek word tupos multiple times, twice in 1 Corinthians 10 alone, where it is translated as example. He also calls Adam a type of Christ in Romans 5.14, which says, "...death reigned from Adam to Moses." even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Same word. So the New Testament tells us to look for patterns and examples that illustrate the life of faith. And some have seen such a pattern in this story of Isaac digging again the wells of his father Abraham. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote an entire book, one of my favorite books, called revival, where he basically argues, based on the pattern of this story, based on the example of Isaac digging again the wells of his father Abraham, he basically argues that back is the way forward. He says that when the people of God lose their way, they should dig again the wells of their father Abraham, return to the old sources of spiritual nourishment and blessing. Now, I think that is true. I love that book, but I think I would say that the point he is making is more easily argued from other more obvious texts. I'll leave it at that for now. Far be it from me to disagree with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Verse 23 goes on to say, From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. This is a classic covenant renewal passage. God frequently repeats and reaffirms his promises to the covenant community. Isaac then responds by building an altar and worshiping the name of the Lord. This is a further reminder to us that worship is essentially response to who God is and what God promises to do on behalf of his people. Verse 26 says, When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzathath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they arose early and exchanged oath, 
oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba, and therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Abimelech sees that Isaac is blessed by God and prospering, even in a famine, even in a waterless land, he is eager to be at peace, formerly with the one that he had persecuted and cast out. Now, there's a principle here, which we want to be careful to take note of. It isn't merely that we are blessed that attracts the attention of our neighbors. It is that we are blessed in adversity and that we are blessed despite persecution. That's what Abimelech noticed. And that is what caused him to attribute Isaac's situation to the hand of God. Therefore, it is not congruent with the life of faith as we see it in the Bible to expect the absence of hardship or the absence of sickness or the absence of loss. We won't be without those things until we get to Revelation chapter 1 and the new heavens and the new earth. No, no. Biblical faith expects blessing in hardship, blessing in adversity, blessing in pain, blessing in sickness, blessing in loss, and blessing despite persecution. This is what gets noticed. This is what brings God glory. And this is what grows faith in God's people. Thanks be to God. Verse 34 says, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Here again, we see that Esau is not a man of faith. He's a man of appetites. He did not consult his parents. He married poorly, rashly, and for reasons that are not hard to imagine. Even though God's choice was primary, we see again here, it was not unjust. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, that's a great chapter in the story, but it ends with a bit of a thud. The last two verses in chapter 26 say, When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Genesis 26, 34, and 35. What are we supposed to make of that rather depressing postscript on our story? Well, it certainly is realistic, isn't it? The second half of the chapter is all about how Isaac was being blessed. Verse 12 says, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. Then in verse 29, Abimelech declares, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So everything is going great for Isaac, professionally, politically, economically. And then we get this, his oldest son married poorly and his wives made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. There is no heaven this side of heaven. There are no perfect families, certainly not this family. So that's part of the reason. But it also serves to introduce a certain theme, and that is the idea that the line of promise is often threatened by poor relationship choices. Now, I should probably say reinforces rather than introduces, because we saw this theme hinted at in the extreme lengths that Abraham went to in chapter 24 to secure a wife for Isaac. But here we see it again. 
And this theme will reappear again and again and again in the biblical narrative. It was Solomon's many foreign wives that turned his heart away from the Lord. We're told about that in 1 Kings 11. And then it was marrying ungodly women in the story of Ezra that caused the righteous scribe to pull his own hair out and that led eventually to the mass divorce in Ezra chapter 10. And even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? 2 Corinthians 6.14 So one of the things that the Bible seems to be saying is that our grasp on the promises and blessings of God is often threatened by misguided love and affection. Human beings are relational creatures. We are affected by our most intimate relationships. Our beliefs tend to follow our loves, not the other way around. So you have to guard your heart, and you have to love in faith. And that seems to be where this little thread in Genesis 26 is heading. Yeah, well, that's a hard truth, but it's a helpful truth. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that in the weeks and episodes to come. As always, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 